0: Braves have given you a championship, listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson, to first, Braves, yeah! world champions! Braves and baseball talk, straight from the diamond, here's Grant McCauley.
1: Hello and welcome to From the Diamond, right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I'm Grant McCauley, joined as always by Corey McCartney here in the Kia Studios on a Sunday night. A little bit later, start than usual, but I think it's worth the wait, Corey, because the Braves were able to escape Chicago by salvaging the finale of their series. We'll talk a lot about that. We'll talk about this 4-2 and two road trip. We'll get you sized up for what's going to be, I think, a pivotal homestand for the Braves as their sub-500 schedule is now at an end after about a month's worth of that. And they're going to have some good clubs rolling into Truist Park. So, Corey, excited to have you here, and good to see the Braves get back on the winning track and bring home a W in the finale of this road trip.
2: 21-8 and eight in this stretch that we talked about that was so crucial, the 14-game winning streak, of course. Now five and a half games back, not a monumental shift there, but certainly they gained up some ground and got momentum on their side.
1: Yeah, you definitely needed to, and we'll talk a lot about what this winning streak that the Braves went on, 14 in a row, what that meant to them. What the month of June has just meant in general after a couple of months in which we saw the Braves really struggling to find themselves offensively. From the pitching side at times, they were having trouble with that. Bullpen question marks, injuries, all the different things that clubs deal with over the course of a 162 game season. It felt like the Braves were kind of dealt a, uh, a rough hand there early on in trying to just get themselves on the right track. But they have turned the corner here in the month of June, and that continued on Sunday. We'll get into all of that in a moment. Want to remind you, though, of course you can follow me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey at Corey J McCartney. You can find the show at From the Diamond underscore, and of course at 92.9. The game is where you can find the station across these social platforms. So. With that out of the way, let's dive into the week that was in Atlanta Braves baseball. Because this 14-game winning streak I mentioned, Corey, that really turned things around for the Braves. It may not have erased the NL East Mets lead, but it did trim it down from 10 and a half games on June the first to five and a half games as we sit here discussing this on the show right now. And it did wonders in terms of vaulting Atlanta into the wild card race, which before this they were having a lot of trouble just having a playoff you know possibility in front of them that felt like they could reach out and grab it.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, you look at where they were at before and, and things felt like if you didn't take advantage of this chance that they had against these teams with, again, that, that uh, you know, those records, uh, where were they going to find themselves as the schedule started to heat up? Because they, the, the brunt of what they have against the Mets is coming in that second half of the season. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly 67 games into the season. They are, they are eight games, nine games, excuse me, now above 500. A year ago this time, they were four games below 500. Mm-hmm. They were seven games back at this point in 2021. They're now five and a half games back. Uh, but the wild card standings, they're going to face one of those teams that's right above them starting Monday at uh, Truist Park. So we knew how crucial this op- this this period was. How yep. are you going to find your footing? Were you, were you going to be able to at all look like the team everyone expected them to look like? Uh, they did exactly that, and they're going into a, a real key stretch now at home uh, with the Giants and the Dodgers to follow. So you're going to see some familiar faces. Of course, Jock Peterson's mm-hmm. going to get his ring. Freddie yep. Freeman is going to get yep. his ring. Uh, but the... D- degree of difficulty is about to <laughs> jump up exponentially over the next week. So we're going to go ahead into the game settings and put it on expert yeah, that's at this right. point yeah. we're, we're
1: no longer going to play on beginner. Well, be that as it may, I mean like and people have made light of this and you and I talked about this on battery power this past week. You know, you are supposed to beat these teams. These sub 500 teams if you in fact see yourself and plan on being a good team, but to win all of those games in a row that the Braves did 14 straight before running into a def- I don't want to say deflating one nothing loss against the Cubs but it was disappointing. Then what I felt like was the first truly bad game that they had played all month, that they lost on Saturday. Kyle Wright just kind of ran into some trouble. The Braves offense couldn't really get it going and look, they're not they weren't going to go unbeaten for the rest of the season, but there were still some good things to take out of that stretch even over the weekend and I'll talk about that in a moment, but kind of keying in on this 29-game stretch against some 500 clubs you mentioned 21 and 8 During that stretch, if the Braves want to go ahead and play 724 winning percentage baseball for the rest of the year, I think they'll feel pretty good about the wild card chances. They'll probably feel pretty good about their NL East chances as well. But we'll see what happens over the next, what, 95 games that the Braves have remaining after Sunday's win over the Cubs. But it's crazy how baseball works because the Braves brought that 14 game winning streak into chicago on friday to face the cubs in game one of three the cubs were bringing a 10 game losing streak into that same game it's the first time in 23 years i think that two clubs with a double digit winning streak and a double digit losing streak could face one another and wouldn't you know it one to nothing the cubs take that win by just scratching across a run in the eighth inning with some bad luck for the braves some good fortune for them so tip of the cap but in that game we saw charlie morton kind of return to form I think that was something positive to take from it. And again, as you look at what's in front of the Braves and what they are going to be facing moving forward, you knew that this offense was going to have to show up to power this club. And that is exactly what has happened here in the month of June. They've been leading Major League Baseball in home runs. They are a top five team or top 10 team overall, offensively, I think, in just about every single category in all of MLB. And I think the pitching staff has been pretty solid along the way as well. When you put those two things together, this is the Braves team we expected to break camp. Way back in april
2: so a lot to unpack there start off with the home runs they are tied for the most uh, in the month with 38. there's still a chance that they get the fourth 60 home run month in history uh only the 2019 yankees 2021 blue jays and 2019 mariners have done that they could have gotten some more i mean you think about friday and i hate oh, to yeah. blame i hate to blame the wind of wrigley but on friday they had seven hits of 100 mile per hour higher including flyouts of 107.4 from Azuna, Acuna at 104.4. Those had expected batting averages of 9.10 and 8.30, respectively. And those obviously did not go in their favor. Then on Saturday, they get the home run from Adam Duvall, but it could have been more. I mean, you had Acuna one, 113.2 on a lineout. That's, that's
1: the one that sticks out to me. Yeah, and
2: then Olsen 107.1 on a flyout. They just got Bay to death in Chicago, but certainly, you know, the home runs are still there with this team. It's still a ridiculous pace for June. And then to go into Charlie Morton on Friday, I mean, this was really him. We were waiting for an outing that felt like Charlie Morton. We certainly were. And
1: I want to get more into Charlie Morton, but I do want to stick kind of in on the offense because as we look at what the Mets were doing so well, they were scoring a bunch of runs. They are also keeping the opponents from scoring that amount of runs, and they were really, I think for a while, the only club in the division that had a run differential that was in their favor. The Braves certainly were not a team sitting at four games under 500 at the end of the month of May that was looking at the at the run differential and saying, gosh, what's going on with us right now? They simply weren't scoring the runs at the rate that they needed to. The third most run scored this month coming into Sunday. You mentioned tied for the Major League lead in home runs, and one of the guys that has been in the middle of all of this, not the only guy, but just the one that – I think has shined the brightest, perhaps this month of any Braves player, is Michael Harris. second his arrival has coincided with this club really turning things around. I believe they're what 16 and three since Harris made his major league debut. That, as they say, will play. Um, this is a kid that is really showing out in all um, on both sides of the ball. Another home run on Sunday. His third home run. He is OPSing nearly 900. He's batting well over 300. He's playing Gold Glove level defense. Everything is going right for this kid so far, and we know when you come and make a big splash in Major League Baseball, the league will adjust. But if you look for reasons why the Braves are where they are right now and why they were able to go on this tear, I think, and find consistency both in the lineup and in their outfield, you kind of point to Michael Harris, don't you?
2: He's got three home runs in the last six games. I mean, the power's there, and fifth among all rookies in Fangraph 4, fourth in weighted run creative plus, second among all rookie outfielders in outs above average uh, you know, and it's all about the stability of what he was able to provide in that outfield, and what it meant to have him at center field, and what you were then able to do because of that. You no longer had Adam Duvall. having you know, and Adam Duval is capable of playing center field. He's, he's an athletic guy with a Gold Glove in his back pocket, but uh, you know, I just don't think that's ideally where you want him. And you know, while Ronald Acuna Jr. when completely healthy and not coming off of an injury is capable of playing at center field as well, you want a guy who just is more prototypical there. And, and Michael Harris, II, second. Allows them the opportunity to do that, and then you know as he'd be able to provide what he's provided at the bottom of the lineup. I mean, it, over 1,200 <laughs> OPS over this hot stretch that we're talking about from him. So, took him a little while to find his footing. I mean, I mentioned before he told me about the conversation about the Alcantara at bat in mm-hmm. his first his first game. You know, he just was flying through breaking balls, and I think he he said he had a plan. He was going to stick with his plan, and now we're seeing that plan work out.
1: Yeah, and when you're able to make the little adjustments and things that you need to do at the plate, it just shows that you've got a good aptitude as a hitter and the ability to you know work your way through. And I should say, he would have a lot of confidence in what he brings as a hitter, and the Braves had a lot of confidence in it as well. But one of the nicest parts about him coming up is that. Yeah, you're asking him to play every day in center field in the big leagues, and that is a big job. But you're not looking at him as this was the number one prospect in baseball. He's got to come in and save the day, and all the expectations get dumped on him. He really is in a group where I think he can fit in and be one of the guys rather than having to be the guy because the one who's expected to be the guy is playing immediately to his left, and that, of course, is right field. And that's where Ronald Acuna Jr. has been patrolling on a pretty regular basis for about a week and a half now. That's another thing that's going in the favor of the Braves and of Michael Harris. And just in general, being able to have this outfield, you mentioned with Adam Duvall and left, the defensive uh, you know, range of this group is so much better than anything the Braves have been trotting out prior to that. 16-5 since Harris came up. you got to count the two losses in Chicago. As much as I don't want to count them, I'm going to count them anyway. Now, there was one big loss on this road trip, and it's perhaps the biggest loss the Braves have faced all season long, and that, of course, is the fractured left foot suffered by second baseman Ozzie Albies. 60-day injured list right away, so you knew that this prognosis was you're going two-plus months without your All-Star second baseman. I know that Ozzy had not gotten off to the offensive start that you hoped that he would over the first two, three months of the season, but you know it's in there, and you know how much he means to the Braves and the overall fabric of this club and the personality of this club that has done a lot of winning, including a World Series this past season. How do you size up the loss of Ozzy Albies and the big shoes that somebody has to fill for a guy who might not be the biggest on the field? But, man...
2: He sure shows up big. Without question. And I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat that this hurts, right? I mean, he's not been, as you mentioned, nearly as strong as you would expect out of him. I mean, his two forty four average was the lowest of any of his six seasons, uh, you know, certainly hitting below league average for the first time in his career. But no NL second baseman had more outs above average before that injury. And you go to Orlando Arcia as the main piece to fill in for him. And he's never had a WRC plus of 100 or plus or better in a season. Uh, Phil Gosselin got the start on Sunday, went hitless. I, I think you can get some some strong play out of Arcia, but I don't mm-hmm. think that you can expect what we've seen out of him in spurts to be the long term expectation there. So I think you can you get enough to get by for the next two plus months. Yeah, but I, I just think you what you what the drop off is just so monumental. I'm going to be interested to see what this ends up doing to this offense. I mean, if, if Arcea goes cold and Goslin can't hit, what's the other option? I mean, do you have to go outside the organization? Can you get anybody else that you can come up, you know, and try to fill that spot? In the, in the meantime, I just think it's not having to worry about a pitcher hit obviously helps. helps. Because then you don't have a second spot in the lineup right. that you're worried so much right. about. But I you know RCA has not played consistently in three years, and I just think I think if you're leaning on that is the is the potential for the guy to fill the spot. I think it, it there's obviously is a track record but it's right. not been consistent in a long time.
1: Well, he played pretty much every day in the COVID season, which was obviously a shortened season. But to your point, I mean, he spent last year, the majority of it, at AAA Gwinnett. That's mm-hmm. that's where the Braves parked him. I think it was a nice get by Alex Anthopoulos from a 40-man roster depth perspective because clearly the Brewers did not have any plans for him. And this was a highly regarded player when he came up, and the Brewers thought he was going to be their shortstop for the next, what, five, seven, eight or more years, and that just did not work out. But... This is a guy I do think that maybe had a little more pop than people realize. But is he going to hit near 350 and OPS 1,000 for the rest of the year? Well, of course he's not. But I do think he hits the ball hard. I think that maybe he's benefited somewhat from what he's been able to accomplish in both Gwinnett and with Atlanta early this season. And sometimes it takes a guy a little while to you know, truly find that opportunity. Sometimes it takes a change of venue, and you know that, that change can sometimes spur him to perform a little bit better than he did in his early years in the big leagues where you mentioned he was not an offensive force with the Brewers. No two ways about it. He also doesn't have the range that Ozzie Albies has at second base, but he does have a pretty great arm, and he has been able to hit to the point where I feel like you can have at least enough confidence to know if you're asking a guy to bat eighth because you're not going to move him around the lineup the way you would in Ozzie Albies, I don't think. But if you're asking a guy to bat eighth, I think he could be able to hold that down for at least a couple of months until you hopefully are looking at getting Ozzie Albies back. And, and hopefully, again, to use that word, it's before the month of August, and we'll see how that all plays out. Phil Gosselin clearly is just a guy that's been brought in to have some infield versatility. Could they, look, could they look for somebody else? They probably could, but we'll see how that whole thing plays out, and there's a little bit of time to figure it out, but I think RC has done enough thus far this year to give you a little bit of faith that at least you had something to turn to rather than losing Ozzy Albies, then looking at Triple A Gwinnett and saying, gosh, we really don't have an answer here, and now we have to go out and get something, or we have to spend at least 30 days – Kind of trying to figure out until some other club decides that they want to throw in the towel and trade us somebody,
2: unless Kelly Johnson somehow available again. I, I don't know. <laughs> we want to go down that road again <laughs> many, many, many times. But uh, yeah, you want know, to have an Eric Ibar, You know all the names you want to throw out from, right. the, from the past, Emilio Bonifacio, But uh, you know we'll see. I mean, certainly it, it, it's a it's a tough blow regardless. Yeah, no, it's
1: a definite tough blow for the Braves. We'll see how they're able to respond to that. But thus far, we have seen Atlanta winning at a pretty great clip here in the month of June and being able to close some serious ground on the New York Mets. we got a lot more to talk about as we continue with this week in Braves baseball. And we'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you here from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue right here on From the Diamond and we continue our look through this week in Braves baseball. It was a good one overall. Atlanta finishing off a 4-2 and road trip with a victory over the Cubs on Sunday up in Wrigley Field. And now they'll be coming home for a very challenging home stand against a couple of tough teams out in the West. Of course, the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers are in the offing. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I want to key in on something that has really helped out the Braves in recent run—the uh, 14-game winning streak and everything else the Braves have done here this month—and that's getting able to being able to figure out how to fill the fifth spot in a rotation, Corey. This is something we've talked about all season long. We've seen many, many pitchers get a turn here, and we saw one guy that was really showing us a lot to like in the bullpen, and Spencer Strider. And started wondering, are they going to give him a chance to start? That's what he'd done in the minor leagues. That's what he'd done in college. Well. That's what he's doing in the big leagues now. Back to back strong outings, and his team and his quest to become the team's fifth starter. Eleven strikeouts against Washington. Pitch count now up over a hundred. I think he's proven us quite a lot, and this should be his job to lose going forward.
2: Man, he was fantastic the last time out, right? Uh, finest outing yet. He allowed one hit over five and two thirds, a career high. Eleven strikeouts against the Nationals. Forty-one percent whiff rate on the yeah. night, nearly fifty percent on that slider, which you know I've detailed is one of the. Most unhittable pitches on this Braves staff when you look at what he's been able to do with that. The third pitcher in Braves history to fan less, uh, fan 11 in less than six innings, Julio Teran in 2013, Tony Kloninger in 1965, have done that. Um, a 1-3 war for him right now. Uh, I mentioned this the other day on Battery Power TV that Mackenzie Gore the Padres, Vegas tells you he is the favorite right now for NL Rookie of the Year. Mm-hmm. He is just point .3 uh, in fangraph war ahead of Spencer Strider right now. So... Uh, the the resume for Strider continues to grow in that way, and uh, you know the the word is clearly out. I've seen a few more mustaches popping up <laughs> around Atlanta, so I think it's uh he, he, he Spencer Strider's a vibe, and I think everybody's feeling it right
1: now. Yeah, it's quite a fashion statement for sure with the mustache, but it's an even bigger statement on the mound. We did a whole episode talking about what the Braves had going on heading into that series against Chicago. Of course, Spencer Strider had already pitched against Washington, had struck out those 11 batters. And I went through looking at minimum of 40 innings pitched by all pitchers in Major League Baseball in 2022. Spencer Strider, nearly 14 strikeouts per nine is top of the heap. He is getting prodigious amounts of swings and misses, piling up strikeouts. The most impressive thing to me has been outside of that one little hiccup in Coors Field, where I I don't know that I even really blame him because that's not a fun place to pitch, but outside of that, Corey... There has been nothing about what Spencer Strider has done from a control or command standpoint
2: that's had me wondering too much about his ability to throw strikes. And I'll tell you what I found so interesting about that national start is you can say a guy this young where he just had a taste of things last season and we're starting to see a little bit more of him. How long is it going to take a team to get a book on him, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the Nationals saw him earlier in the season. He came in in a relief role and pitched three innings and he struck out three guys in that one. Uh, and he comes back and throws five and two thirds against him. The next time out was even better, uh, going for 11 k So they saw him before. It didn't matter. I think that's what's interesting with him is he just has you know he's got a three pitch arsenal. You go off that 100 mile an hour fastball with that slider, that swing and miss stuff. Uh, I, you know, I just think it's just so intriguing how he, how this is going to to, to factor in with Sor- Mike Sirocco when he's mm-hmm. on the way back. How this whole thing's going to work out, but. Man, so far, so good for Spencer Strider in a starting role.
1: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about Soroka for a moment because we got a lot to kind of unpack, to use that word again, when it comes to the Braves rotation because we saw some good things in Chicago as well that should have the Braves feeling pretty confident about where their rotation is trending. And getting a Mike Soroka back in here, you've got to be excited about it. I know I've said and I will continue to say there's nobody that's going to be more excited, you know, with the exception of probably Mike Soroka, than me or you or people that know him to see him get back and get that chance to get back on a big league mound. But we're talking about... A two year absence pretty much since the time that he injured that Achilles for the first time to the time that he would be in line to come back and rejoin the Braves, whether that's in, you know, a month, month and a half, sometime in August, whatever that may be, you know, I, I want to kind of guard the expectations on on Mike Soroka, because I'm not sure what it's going to look like. And we're not sure that everything's going to go without hiccup. And I'm not saying another injury of a of a big sort like he had to deal with last year, but just allowing him to get back in there, get comfortable, and realize that. Hey, when you do come back, we are ready for you. And what that plan's going to look like in rotation, I don't know. If you'd asked me prior to the Cubs series, I would have said, well, Charlie Morton's got a little bit to prove. I don't know that I would say he's going to lose his spot in rotation, but Ian Anderson's got a little bit to prove here. There's been some you know, mixed results for him of late as well, but both those guys pitch great here in Chicago or, or up in Chicago. So you have to feel pretty good about that. It's the best problem you can have, and it's the one that when we go to spring training every year, and we're like, oh, well, you've got too many starting pitchers, and the manager's always quick to point out, no, we don't, because by the time this season's over, some things are going to happen that are going to change our plans, and we're glad to have all the depth we can, and I guess you just kind of have to figure it out as it goes.
2: So think back to when we were going through everything and, and during the, you know, the, the quick start up there after the lockout ended, and everyone was wondering about how are you going to manage workloads for starting pitchers. Yep, It's back to... That starting point with Mike Soroka. whenever this thing does happen and he gets back onto the field and uh, threw a bullpen session on Friday, where does he got up to 95-mile-per-hour in that bullpen session? Mm-hmm. Mike Soroka didn't throw 95-mile-per-hour a lot of times in the last uh, few outings that we saw to him. So that's a, that number one is a great sign. But you, you got to think they're, they're going to have to manage the workload for him once he gets going. How, how often are they going to let him go? What, how many pitches is he going to be able to throw? I think regardless of whatever Spencer Strider's role is going to be, having a guy like that that can come in, on the back end of a Soroka start or, you know, however you want to utilize mm-hmm. him, I, I think it's going to be really, it's going to be crucial to have that backup, number one. And number two, I think it's going to be uh, really interesting to see how uh, Brian Snicker is going to handle the the load for Soroka when he does get back into the rotation. Yeah. Cause people
1: always talk about six man rotation, but that plan for, I don't care what club it is. It never lasts the entirety of a season. It's always for a two, a three week period or a time in which you're just skipping some guys, giving them some extra rest and, that is more or less the most that you're going to see a six-man rotation utilized. I don't know if they would look to piggyback him in a role where maybe Sirocco would be coming in and looking to kind of build his way back in the way similar to what Spencer Strider did as a multi-inning guy and then maybe getting that chance to start as the calendar turns into August, September, whatever it may be. I don't really know the right answer for this, to be honest with you. You want to do right by the player. You're obviously trying to win, so you want to use the pitchers to give you the best chance to do that. But if things are flowing optimally at this point, Max Reed, Kyle Wright, Ian Anderson, Charlie Morton, all in some order but with Max Reed at the top and Spencer Strider still looks good in the fifth spot, this is a fascinating
2: decision for the Braves to make. And do you think of Soroka as a long guy? I mean, do you think of uh, maybe you. you I've work never him thought in of him
1: as a reliever at all. But so that could makes you? it more I mean, fascinating. But could to you me. do
2: that and work him in as a, as a long relief option? And you know, maybe that pushes out a Jesse Chavez, who we've seen him run into some issues a time or two. Maybe that becomes a role until you build him back up. I, I think that's going to be the big thing because no matter what happens down in Florida, when that 30 day clock starts and he gets on his rehab assignments, yeah, I mean, you're going to try to get him up to 70, 80 pitches and feel comfortable with him doing that, but it's going to be a different kind of stress, a different kind of you know workload when he gets to the major league level. If if Strider is still rolling, I think mm-hmm. that's going to be the, the real tipping point in how you utilize Soroka. Yeah, it's going to
1: be fascinating to see that. I mentioned a couple of other names, and we've talked about them as well. Charlie Morton, Friday in Chicago, was the start I think everybody had been looking forward to, nobody more so than Charlie Morton, who f- uh, struck out nine guys pitched seven innings of shutout ball against the Cubs, got a no decision for his efforts as the Braves lost one to nothing. But this came on the heels of a 12-strikeout performance against the Pirates in which the swings and misses were up for Charlie as well. Yeah, he did get jumped for a couple of home runs early on and give up a couple of runs later in that start. But it seems like over the past couple of outings, at at best this year, Maybe he's been at his best the last couple of outings, so boil it all down. Do you feel like Charlie Morton may indeed be, air quotes,
2: back? This was the first scoreless start for him since May 8th. He struck out a combined 29 over his last three outings. He had 18 swings, 12 whiffs on that curveball, 67% in that outing. Uh, That was the big piece, right? Because that pitch has just, it's, I mean, it's been hittable this year. He's thrown more than anybody in baseball, and Guys have not been swinging through that pitch. So I think this outing in particular was a big step in that direction. I know he had double digit strikeouts before that in an outing that necessarily wasn't the strongest. He had gone through a run there where he was allowing, you know, f- at least four and three straight starts. Uh, I think this one felt big. I, I, on the flip side of it, I mean, this is not a great offense that he's going against. You get, you get around Wilson Contreras. And there's not a whole lot of speed bumps in this uh this club's lineup. But uh nonetheless, these are professionals and I think getting a sixty seven percent whiff rate on a pitch that's been you've been having issue with in a start like in a start like this, I think this is a more than positive sign for Charlie Morton.
1: Yeah, I would say that's the same sentiment that I would take from it. Yeah, it is not the twenty seven Yankees. Many teams are not that club and the Chicago Cubs are a team that does struggle to score some runs, but for Charlie Morton, he has struggled against lineups of all different shapes and sizes and ability levels this year, and it's good to see him go out there and really dominate a game. That felt more like Charlie Morton, the way he was pitching through the second half of last year and even into the playoffs for the Braves, what they were really looking for out of him. Now, Ian Anderson had a similar run of misfortune that uh, Charlie was having and that he was giving up four or more earned runs in all but one of his starts, the one against Oakland at home, uh, three outings ago now, but he was able to go out in Chicago. I saw much better command out of him. He was really peppering the strike zone. He was not very hittable, unless your name was Ian Happ, so maybe some Ian on Ian crime there. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you know, this was the kind of start you want to see out of Ian, where he's commanding, and then he's able to, and he kind of saved his changeup the first time through. Paul Byrd noticed that on the broadcast for Bally Sports, and I thought that was really something that – is helpful for him that changeup is a huge weapon but you can't just become a two pitch starting pitcher particularly if you can't locate one of them the way you need to
2: yeah i mean in in, in a lot in the same way that we're talking about morton here that changeup is it's not been nearly as effective for him either i mean you go to back to, to 2020 and teams were hitting 104 against it last year it was 228 this year he's got a 308 uh, weighted on base average against that because of that the four seam has been less effective nearly 300 average against that That's an almost 80 point jump Year over year. So today you saw him, you know, peppering with that four seam. He worked the curveball a little bit more. Yep. And then he ends up getting six uh, swings and misses on that changeup. So that that's just such a crucial pitch for him, but you have to set it up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got to be something where, you know, you can allow it to dive the way it needs to. I mean, he's just not put together outings with two or fewer runs since April 29th and May 4th, but today was good. Was, I mean, Obviously positive for him. Six and two-thirds, 12 whiffs, six on the changeup, as I mentioned. He, by the way, has thrown 13 and two-thirds innings against the Cubs in his career, and they have yet to get a run on him. So um, this was a a great outing for him. There was a lot to like uh, pitching-wise in this series, and I think in particular Charlie Morton and Ian Anderson stood out big time because they both needed – Kind of rebound outings, and I think they both delivered that way.
1: Yeah, they definitely did. And as you look through Ian Anderson, you go on FanGraphs and you can see, you know, what percentage does he use a certain pitch? His fastball percentage has stayed about the same. His curveball percentage, year over year, I'm talking about it, going back to 2020. So all three of his you know, seasons in the big leagues and however much he has done uh, in each of those years, of course, last year being the one where he had the most exposure, he has not really played at all with those rates. But for whatever reason, it just feels like it's been, I don't know, I mean, and maybe this is just one of those eye test things where it feels like it's more two-pitch mix this year because maybe the curveball has not just been as effective for him. We talked a lot about it for Charlie Morton, but maybe it's just not been a pitch that he wants to rely on more if he's not getting the desired result from that changeup, which he developed after he was drafted by the Braves. That's not really a pitch he even threw as an amateur.
2: No, but it's, it's interesting, though, because he's got an almost 40% whiff rate on that curveball. I mean, I don't know if it's just because teams don't – think it's coming and he throws it and he's known for throwing the changeup so yeah. they just have that that's what you expect to see out of Ian Anderson but i mean the numbers show you he should be throwing that pitch more than 20% of the time
1: yeah i would say so and we'll see how that all plays out cuz you know most pitchers are going to throw their fastball between 40 and 50% of the time in and, and whether or not they have a four seamer and a two seamer or a four seamer and a, a cutter or splitter mm-hmm. or some other variation that you would say is a a fastball that you could utilize to get some swings and misses on but really for him, I think it's been command. And as soon as he's able to command, and if he's able to command the way he was against the Cubs, you're going to see a lot more outings like this out of Ian Anderson. And the Braves would certainly love to see it because, you know, this start on Sunday was the first time he'd been able to pitch into the seventh inning and record an out. So I think that's a, a kind of a big deal. It may not seem like much of one. It may not be one he's going to get a trophy for, or a certificate he's going to hang on his wall. But you, you better believe that Ian Anderson would like to, A, be able to go three times through a lineup, and B, which it would be a result of that, be able to get his club to the seventh inning
2: and beyond. I will say, though, the one thing with Ian Anderson, I, I think his own successes in the postseason have built up this expectation for him that are just really hard for him to to, to live up to. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's a fascinating study because he's been so just lights out in the postseason. And you've just not seen that run of dominance from him in the regular yeah. season. I think it's 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 I mean, it's great if he wants to do it in October. And I'm sure Braves sure. fans would mu- more than love to see him do that again in October. But I, I would I would love to see a, a completely dominant run from him in the regular season that looks a little bit more like
1: October. Yeah, but even in October, and this is where you have a much quicker hook if you're a manager, yeah. we saw that happen with yep. Ian Anderson as well. He can work himself into a little bit of trouble. I was there for Game 3 of the World Series. I mean, I know that there was some, you know, just command, if you want to call it that, but really, I thought he was so effectively wild at worst that this was a night that he was going to do something special, but they needed to play it the way they did. And as it turned out, the Braves played it the right way. They won that game. Ian Anderson was a big reason why, and he was a big reason why they ended up holding the commissioner's trophy at the end of that series. Uh, Father's Day weekend was also a great one for the Contreras brothers. I want to get out of here on this note. I really enjoyed seeing Wilson and William sharing the field as big leaguers. Corey, you're a father, so happy Father's Day to you. Their father was in the stands at Wrigley. That had to be great.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine. It
1: had to be a really cool moment without question for the Contreras family. Well, I look forward to you having the McCartney boys on a big <laughs> league go. field Let's sometime soon. We'll see how that works out for them, and we'll be cheering them on all the while. As we come back, we'll shift our focus to what else is happening in MLB. we got lots more Brazen baseball talk coming your way on From the Diamond of Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley along with Corey McCartney from the Kia Studios, on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We've talked a lot about the Atlanta Braves who polished off a 4-2 and two road trip to finish up what has been a very torrid start to the month of June and Come on back home where they'll be facing a couple of tough teams. San Francisco Giants and Los Angeles Dodgers are waiting on the Braves here. Four games beginning on Monday with San Francisco. That'll get us started. And uh, with that in mind, we want to kind of turn our focus to what else is happening across the rest of baseball. And we're going to start in the National League West with not one but two big injury stories for one club. And then we're going to keep the injury train rolling because the Dodgers are also dealing with a little bit of that. But it's the Padres, I think, Corey, that have been hit the hardest as we begin three up, three down. Six of the biggest stories from Major League Baseball over the past week. And this is bad news for him as they're trying to chase the Dodgers in the West. Fernando Tatis and now Manny Machado are going to be unavailable for this club. Tatis has yet to play a game uh, this year, but it was Machado who suffered a very scary-looking sprained ankle on Sunday. Had to be helped off the field. X-rays were negative for him. Meanwhile, Tatis was hoping to get back to baseball activities, and that's not happening yet either as his wrist has not shown sufficient enough healing for the club and doctors to be able to greenlight him uh, getting him back will be big for the Padres, uh, who've had success without Tatis this year, but largely their success has been built on Machado's MVP-caliber season. So losing their third baseman for any length of time, uh, they may have dodged a bullet on a larger injury here, but this is not something the Padres can really afford at the moment.
2: No, I hate this for this team, right? I mean, Machado was having, I mean, obviously he can still get back and all that, but, I mean, he was having a season I don't think people were talking enough about a you know, the, the MLB leader in Fangraph War, 160 way to run, create a plus. That, that's a career high. Better than that heyday when you think about him uh, in Baltimore, and then when he went over for the Dodgers for that stretch. Um, so certainly not having him is going to be a, is a massive blow. And then the Tatis thing. I mean, the MRI this past week that the healing not where they wanted it to be. So you, you go back to when he had surgery in March, and GM AJ Preller said three months. We're, we're looking at a mid June return. Mm-hmm. We're past that. I mean, he missed 32 games in 2021 with a shoulder issue. In 2019, right. the back injury ended his season at 84 games. 14 years, 340 million dollars he's under control through 2034. And yeah. obviously you don't have him how we'll just see how long it's yet to be determined how long they are out with Machado but man they they have been propped up by some 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 surprising offense and then you think about what's going on with their pitching staff and now they have Joe Musgrove who's now 8-0 but now he's on the COVID IL. Mike Clevenger comes back um he's pitching out of the bullpen uh, because they got a six-man rotation that they're rolling with right now. Um, they, they just just can't get over themselves. I mean, as, as, talent, as talented as that roster is, it just feels like they just can't put it all together. And now they find themselves a half game back of the Dodgers. They had the division league going into Sunday. Uh, now they're a half game back.
1: Yeah, and if you want to know exactly how good Machado has been this year, he's already put up a 4-2 fangraph war in 65 games. If you're curious about that, a four-war season is pretty darn good for a lot of players, if you can even get to that point. He is on track for a 10 or 11 war season, and that's the kind of thing that if you do that enough, you get to go hang out in Cooperstown, and maybe Machado gets there one day. But in the short term, all of those larger career aspirations aside, You know, he was very much needed to be a part of this Padres lineup, and he was, I think, the MVP frontrunner easily in the National League, and this is going to be a tough blow for him if he misses significant time. Thankfully, though, again, x-rays were negative, and hopefully it's just an ankle sprain that keeps him sidelined for a brief amount of time. Speaking of a guy who's already won an MVP, and it plays over for the Dodgers, who've already lost one of their top starting pitchers here in the last week or two, and now it's Mookie Betts who's going to be joining Walker Bueller on the injured list for the first-place Dodgers. Betts suffered a broken rib on Wednesday when he collided with Cody Bellinger in the outfield. An MRI a couple of days later revealed that injury. The Dodgers then placed him on the IL after holding him out of the lineup for a couple of days. They're hoping he only misses a couple of weeks, according to Dave Roberts. But he's putting together, Betts is, a strong season. Already an MVP candidate himself. 17 home runs. The power's shown up. And that had been a little bit of a question mark since he'd shown up with the Dodgers in terms of being the slugger he was in Boston when he won the MVP. And as we've learned, Corey, and as we just talked about with the Padres, there is no club among the 30 that is immune to injury so for the course of 162.
2: No, but if a team can weather it uh, more so than others, I think the Dodgers are pretty well equipped to do just that, but I mean Betts was just tearing it up a 3-3 war, you know, just a 148 wrc plus. Uh, you know, the, the crack I mean any anytime without Mookie Betts hurts, right? But yeah. I think the Dodgers are are prepared to to handle life without him. I mean, they did get Andrew Haney back, so that's a big return, helping out their their pitching staff. Uh, Tony Gonsolin just keeps dealing. Yeah, uh, but they're of course Tyler Anderson. Yeah, but the the team that is going to come to Atlanta if they don't have Mookie Betts, it, it's certainly not going to be what you want to see out of the Dodgers. But uh, again, I think they, I just think they have so much depth that if they have them out for a short period of time, mm-hmm. it's not going to hurt that
1: much. No, it won't. But I mean, at least a couple of weeks for him, and that could yep. be a bit of a setback. And they're going to. Face some tough teams, including coming to Atlanta for the first time since losing the NLCS to the Braves. And as we know, Freddie Freeman will be on that club making his return to Atlanta. So there'll be no shortage of storylines between those two clubs from the times they've met in the playoffs just over the last four or five years. But either way, uh, losing bets is a blow for the Dodgers, who are, again, without Walker Bueller. And we'll see how they're able to weather some of their injury concerns. And with the trade deadline not too terribly far away, I'm sure they're shi- sizing up their shopping list as well. Uh, While we're on the injury discussion, this was a bad week for a couple of guys that helped the Washington Nationals win the World Series three years ago. Steven Strasburg and Anthony Rendon both landed on the injured list. We'll start with Strasburg, who has not been able to do much starting for Washington since signing a seven-year, $245 million contract. He underwent surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome that sidelined him in 2021. It now appears that's flared up again, and that is, after one start, going to shut him down for an undetermined amount of time. Um, this uh, stress reaction between the second and third rib, which is the area of which he already had uh, dealt with, with that uh, surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome a year ago. But now he's 33. And Corey, he's made eight starts since signing that huge deal. The Nationals are on the hook for, I believe, about $140 million more million for him over the next four seasons. World Series MVP in 2019. I don't blame him for signing and bringing him back. They had to pass on Rendon, meanwhile, who went out to Anaheim, signed a huge contract with the Angels. And he was just announced that his season is over, as he's going to require wrist surgery. So, uh, the Nationals, not long ago, were the toast of the baseball world. Those were two huge reasons they won it all. But it appears that both men are now fighting a pretty uphill battle against Father Time.
2: Yeah, and the Rendon thing's so wild too, because you think from the Angels' perspective, you know, they they signed that contract with Albert Pujols that ends up looking really bad in hindsight. Now you've got this, you know, these soft tissue issues with Rendon. I mean, he, in 2021, he played just 58 games, uh, and obviously now the season over, uh, five home runs in 45 games, the third year of a seven-year, $245 million deal with him. Um, so, you know, that, that help that they thought was coming from Mike Trout, at least they've gotten that in Shohei Otani, and, uh, you know, Tyler Ward uh, continues to uh, – Jared, uh, excuse me, Jared Walsh and, and Ward continue to yeah. just uh, knock the cover off the baseballs. But uh, And then on Strasburg, I mean, man, what a, what a just a star-crossed – career for this guy. I mean, mm-hmm. think about the way he came up and, you know, there are questions about the way they shut him down and the yeah. arm usage and, and all this John, stuff. Yep, yeah. Tommy John and all this continues to build. So uh, I just, you know, you, you wonder if we're ever going to see Steven Strasburg put together a 30 start year again. And, I mean, certainly what we've seen out of him these past few years yeah. makes you wonder if that's ever going to happen.
1: Again. It, when he was healthy and in particular looking at 2019, I mean, that I think was pretty much the heights that you could have asked for for this kid who had unparalleled hype for a pitcher that I can remember in the last two or three decades to come up and do the kind of things out of college that this kid was expected to come up and do. He was throwing, what, 101 miles an hour with his 92 or 93-mile-an-hour changeup. Sounds an awful lot like kind of what Jacob deGrom had turned into in New York, his similar kind of arsenal, just filthy, unhittable stuff. But, again, not immune to injury. He's had to deal with that. And as you mentioned, there have been some ups and downs for him. But then you looked at 2019, and I know Braves fans are not sitting around saying, oh, I sure feel good for the Washington Nationals winning the World Series. Those guys deserve it. But they did go out there and win it. And Steven Strasburg was a huge reason why, but I kind of felt like at the time, are the Nationals signing the right guy? Maybe they should keep Rendon and let Strasburg walk because I have that kind of concern about giving a pitcher of his age a long-term contract. And as it turns out, both of these have not been great options for the clubs that signed them.
2: The last eight years, he's made 30 starts once. Right. I mean, it's it's think about like Mark Pryor, Kerry Wood, yeah, Steven Strasburg. These arms that we just get so excited about. And then the usage of them, you know, how many innings they throw earlier in the career, it just, you know, it's just so tough for these guys to pan out. I mean, I, it, yeah. it's tough to think about really young starting pitchers who have come up and long term lived up to expectations. And
1: I didn't even think they overused Strasburg. No, in, in the way that you had the criticism of, oh, well, you know, Dusty Baker did it. Did his managing style and kind of his old school mentality cost Mark Pryor, Cost Kerry Wood? I mean, we'll never know. They could have gotten hurt in their twelfth start of the year. Who knows how that whole thing would play out? But. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of questions that you can ask yourself about those kinds of pitchers. I think Matt Harvey you could put on mm-hmm. that list. I know he's had some personal problems aside from that, but he was certainly on a, on a great track before he ended up having an arm injury and then wanting to pitch right on through the Mets, trying to get, it, get to and win the World Series. It didn't happen for him, but people wonder, was he ever the same after that season as well? So throw another one on the list. Now Let's move off, though, the injury discussion and talk about something a lot more fun because I really love incredible baseball stats, and I saw one uh, this past week that is just about perfect for Father's Day weekend. <laughs> Vladimir Guerrero Sr. and Jr. had some strikingly similar numbers through the same point in their career. I saw this tweet from Hector Gomez this week. Vlad Jr., 87 home runs, 363 on base percentage through 403 major league games. Would you believe Vlad Sr., 87 home runs, a 363 on base percentage through his first 403 big league games? This is the coolest thing I've seen (laughs) since Prince Fielder and Cecil Fielder. I was going to hit that one for hit you. Hit it 300 right now.
2: 319 career yep. home runs. They both had the exact same number. So you got yeah, you got to love those correlations. Yeah.
1: I really do. And I know, what, you know one of the other things we always see and always think about are the father-son tandems that got to play in Major League Baseball because that's something you would think is completely and totally unheard of. How is that even possible? The Griffies, of course, mm-hmm. did that in the late 80s, early 90s up in Seattle. I thought it was pretty cool that Tim Raines ended up playing with Tim Raines Jr. in Baltimore, of all places, toward the end of his career. That's just the kind of thing that, again, you don't see it too terribly often. You know, the father-son on the same team playing at the same time. How is there going to be some career overlap? But those are the kind of things. On a Father's Day weekend, I thought it was worth taking a look at. And to have the exact same stats, not just one, Easy, but yeah. multiple stats on the exact same number of games, that's some next-level stuff by the Guerreros. And I think Vlad Jr. has got a chance to be pretty special, as was his father, who is in Cooperstown, of course. Now, Houston pulled off something incredible on Wednesday against the Rangers, two immaculate innings in the same game. That, of course, if you're listening out there and they're like, what's an immaculate inning? It's a 1-2-3 inning, striking out the side and using just nine pitches to do it. It happened against the same three batters twice in this game. Astros starter Luis Garcia struck out the Rangers Nathaniel Lowe, Ezekiel Duran, and Brad Miller in the second inning on nine pitches for the first immaculate inning. Then in the seventh, Phil Maton came on, did the exact same thing, followed the script to a tee, striking out the same three guys on nine pitches for the second immaculate inning in this game. Sarah Langs pointed out there had not been two immaculate innings in the same day in baseball history, let alone the same game against the same team with the same three batters. This just goes to show you can show up at a ballpark, Corey, and see something that's never been done before. So
2: September 27th, 1928, Hall of Famer Lefty Grove threw what? on record as the first immaculate inning, right? Mm -hmm. It was 9,112 days, almost 25 years before the next one happened. And you're talking about two in the same game.
1: I mean, there are perfect games. There are hitting for the cycle. There's four homer games. I mean, uh, striking out 20 guys, I guess, maybe would be on this list. I mean, there's some in-game accomplishments that the players have that um, lead off home run maybe walk off home run different things that to different levels i don't know how you want to lay them all out but immaculate innings that's pretty tough to do
2: 106 and 107 all time that tells you how rare that is yeah
1: pretty darn rare now let's uh, wrap things up here with something that uh, seems to be rare down in tampa and that seems to be places to play for the rays because they have been stuck at tropicana field since rolling into the league back in 1998 and this past week Commissioner Rob Manfred turned up the heat on the Rays' need for a new stadium, put the focus back on it again. You remember, Corey, back before the season, this club had planned to split their time between Tampa Bay and Montreal. That got a lot of debate going, and that was nixed prior to the season, so they are still the Tampa Bay Rays, not the Montreal Rays. Uh, But there's still a long-running discussion about getting them a new ballpark, and they've been in the league for nearly 25 years. And this has been decried as one of the worst facilities and, and one of the worst places that you can have for just about any club, not named the Oakland Athletics. The 30-year lease, though, runs out in 2027. So Rob Manfred, in a show of common sense, said, hey, you know, the lease is kind of a hard date here. And if we want to build a stadium for the Rays, you might want to get started because that's right around the corner here. And getting a stadium built does not happen overnight. um, And these things do take time. And Manfred pointed out the focus is to still keep the club in Tampa. But I guess we're all going to find out together if that's the way this thing plays out.
2: I'm glad you brought up the athletics because you applied to pressure there, too. Their uh, lease with the Coliseum uh, they've had since 1968 expires after the 2024 season. So they've proposed a new ballpark, mm-hmm. uh, Howard Terminal, working with Oakland Mayor to try to get the approvals. But both these teams struggle, and obviously, you know, with attendance, uh, Oakland, 8,283 fans a game. Uh, the Rays is just thir- over 1,300, uh, 13,000. excuse me. So, I mean, it's an issue with both of them. I would, if you had to forecast long term, the A's are moving, right? I, I, I That's don't what know. What it felt like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think Tampa a lot stays. A discussion about it. Remember when Tampa had the the renderings where it was like a, a sailboat kind of deal that was like no. in uh, off the water? You got to look this up. It was super cool. Uh, I, but yeah, I think I think Oakland's going to end up in Vegas.
1: Yeah, that seems to be the talk. And if you're into the the level of I think uh, disgust that there's been between the club and the city, the county, whatever it is. You know, Oakland has just not had an opportunity to really give their fans, I think, a sustained winner. I mean, as as much fun as the Moneyball concept can be, I think that the club would really like to see themselves in a winning window that lasts longer than trading your best players away every two to three years. Now, that is three up, three down. Six of the biggest stories from Major League Baseball this week. When we come back, we'll go around the big leagues. We'll break down what's happening across the National League. Next on From the Diamond here on Sports Radio ninety two nine, the
0: game taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you. Dylan Matthews keeping us on track here as we head into hour two of our two-hour extravaganza. So we're halfway through here and we're going to take a look at what's been happening across the world of baseball this week. And Bring it back to discuss what the Braves have been able to accomplish here in the month of June. Because a 14-game winning streak, Corey, that's the longest in baseball all year. And the Braves very much needed something like that to get them back into this race in the NLEs, which is where we're going to start as we look around the National League. Now, the New York Mets lost on Sunday, thanks in large part to some dramatics by the Marlins. And Gerard Encarnacion hitting a grand slam for his first Major League homer. It backed up Sandy Alcantara who is looking a lot more like Sandy Colfax every time he takes the mound lately. So big assist from the Marlins to help the Braves get back one of those games that they dropped in Chicago in the standings. But a five-and-a-half game lead for the Mets over the Braves. Now we also need to note that the Philadelphia Phillies, despite their loss on Sunday, they have been surging since firing Joe Girardi. So two very different things happen For the Braves, their manager called a team meeting, and the club started winning. For the Phillies, the team called a meeting and said the manager's services are no longer needed, and now the club is winning but the Mets have really not been given a ton of ground. They have been playing well enough, but we got a lot of baseball that has to be played here. I'm not ready to crown anybody the division winner here in the East for very many reasons. Some pretty obvious, others maybe we'll find out over the next 95
2: games. And I hate to be, you know, the, the mind here of looking for chinks in the armor with the Mets, but Tyler McGill left Friday night's game with shoulder discomfort. And you think about all the rotation questions that we've already had. Of course, Jacob DeGrom has not pitched it at all the season, Max Scherzer's on the IL. Uh, McGill was already sidelined for four weeks beginning May 11th with bicep inflammation, Uh, so now he's back out. They're likely going to use David Peterson and Trevor Williams in the rotation with Carlos Carrasco, Taiwan Walker, and Chris Bassett. Uh, Since May 19th, the day after Scherzer's last start, the Mets are 25th in starter ERA. They've been propped up by a top five offense in that run. Mm-hmm. Um, they have already pushed the limits of that existing rotation. Um, it certainly helps when Taiwan Walker has an outing like he did on Saturday, yep. uh, when he th- struck out nine over six and two thirds. But I think that this offense can only keep them afloat so long if the pitching staff is going to perform to this level. Uh, But, again, five-and-a-half games up in this division, I think they'll take whatever lead they can get uh, if it means that they get DeGrom and Scherzer back when it matters most.
1: Now, the latest on Scherzer, in case you're wondering, he did throw a simulated game this week, and he is hoping that maybe his next outing after dealing with his left oblique strain can be a minor league rehab start. And then maybe he could come right back to the Mets after that. It wouldn't be one of those things where, okay, hmm. you need to throw a simulated game, simulate a game, then do two or three minor league rehab starts and come back in the all-star break, basically. So he could be on a faster track to getting back. Now, DeGrom, that, I'm not sure the timetable is fully set in stone there, and I don't know how it could be based on what he's dealt with both last year and this year to know exactly when he could be walking through that door for the Mets. But you're right, you know, if you look at – what the Mets built in their rotation to try to unseat the Braves in the National League East. You start with DeGrom and Scherzer and everything else after that, whether it's Carlos Carrasco or McGill or bringing in Chris Bassett or whatever you get out of Taiwan Walker, those were not the impact players. The impact players are Scherzer and DeGrom and that's a big reason why that starter's ERA and that the pitching staff as a whole has taken some serious lumps.
2: And if they think DeGrom is going to be out longer than anticipated, are they going to get aggressive in the rotation market? And I, I would think, think, think it, so. But here's the thing. If, if they do, let's say that they go out and get Frankie Montas from the A's, right? When you get to the postseason, you only need three thar- three starters. Who's going to – is Frankie Montas going to push Chris Bassett out of the equation? I mean, if you've got DeGrom back at some point, you know, Scherzer's obviously got one of those spots. So I think that's going to be – I mean, it's going to be really compelling to watch. I mean, we know how aggressive uh, their ownership is and how badly he wants to win. Um, we'll see. I mean, I, I think, again, I think the rotation the, – the issues with this rotation – are going to eventually get to them because that offense, you know, which has been predicated on you know a high bay Bip, you know, low hard mm-hmm. hit rates. I mean, certainly Pete Alonso is performing at an MVP level. Yeah, but it's going to catch up to them eventually.
1: It should. And just looking into the latest on Degrom from MLB.com this week, so as of five days ago. He is throwing bullpens right now. He's completed at least four of those. May have thrown a fifth since this article came out. But eventually, minor league rehab assignment that will be longer than Max Scherzer's. Mm -hmm. Does that get him back early to mid-July if all goes well? I think that's what the Mets are hoping for. But that still, if you're just kind of looking at it right now, it's what, the 19th of June, as we sit here doing this show, that could be another month away. What do the Mets do in turn of Jacob deGrom or in his turn in rotation until he gets back? And then when he comes back, Is he, in fact, going to hit the ground running and be Jacob DeGrom with no limitations whatsoever? I had kind of a hard time believing that. Not that he isn't the best pitcher in baseball when he's healthy, because I think that he is. But just be that as it may. I don't think it's as simple as, all right, well, he just comes back and it's like he never left. Because he's dealt with this stuff before. And he's dealt with it more than I think anybody uh, would like to. If you're a New York Mets fan, that's for sure. In the NL Central, the Cardinals are still holding on to first place as the Brewers went into a slide this month. It is a tight race, though. Uh, Miles Michaelis, though he had quite a highlight this week, he nearly threw a no-hitter. It was spoiled in the ninth inning on a double by the Pittsburgh Pirates. And you know we've seen a handful of no-hitters this year. He was bidding, I believe, to be the third, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but for the Cardinals overall, their play has improved as of Sunday's action. This is a dead heat between these two clubs, both 38 and 30. The Brewers, though, they had kind of gotten out to a really nice lead, but their vaunted rotation has not really given them as much as they'd like, and I don't think that they've played the kind of baseball that is going to be enough to hold off the Cardinals with, what, 94 games to go between those two clubs.
2: If the season were ten to today, the Brewers would be home. I mean, they, they, it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, They're 24th in ERA since May 31st. Corbin Burns has a five-one-four ERA in that span. Aaron Ashby, 8-4. Adrian Hauser, 5-7-4. Eric Lauer, 6-3-3. Even Josh Hader. Has been mortal in this run, a 6.0 ERA. And on the topic of the Cardinals, I mean, Paul Goldschmidt looks every bit an MVP candidate. Tommy mm-hmm. Edmond is, I mean, this guy is having an insane season. Yeah. He's .3 uh, behind Goldschmidt in terms of WAR. 129 wRC plus his BSR, which is the fan graph base running statistic, it mm-hmm. turns stolen bases, caught stealing, other base running plays into runs above and below average is six zero, which is 1.7 ahead of anybody in baseball. And if you look yeah. at it pacing-wise, the record is 15-7 by Vince Coleman in 1986. Tommy a Coleman yeah, reference. Tom, I like it. Tommy Edmonds has got a chance. I mean, he, he's, he's having a really special season. Well, then we're going to have to hope then in terms of bizarre injuries in Tommy
1: Edmond that he doesn't get rolled up yeah. in the tarp <laughs> at Bush Stadium because that actually happened to yeah. Vince Coleman. And people still wonder to this day how somebody that fast got rolled up in an automatic tarp. <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, the Brewers this year against clubs above five hundred. Uh, they're 13 and 18. If you're curious about this, as far as a litmus test is concerned, the Braves are 12 and 14 against clubs over 500. And they're about to get tested with a double dose of the Giants and the Dodgers at home and then go out to play the Phillies, who at that time I think should be. Well, we'll find out, though. They're four games over 500 right now, so we'll just go ahead and call it for them. Three tougher series for the Braves as well. But the Brewers in particular have really struggled in that regard. And they're only 15 and 12 at home, so they're not really. You know, doing everything that they need to do or want to do in their home ballpark. Meanwhile, the Cardinals are 21 and 13 at Bush Stadium. So they played some very good baseball there. Rest of the division, all well below 500 the Pirates, the Cubs, and of course the Cincinnati Reds. Now, out west, we talked about the injury woes that have befallen a couple of clubs the LA Dodgers, who we're going to be seeing after the Giants come to town. Then you've got the San Diego Padres, just a half game behind uh, as the action of late Sunday night. Uh, the Padres actually have one more win, but two more losses than the Dodgers thus far this year. That's the differential there. And then you've got the San Francisco Giants, who are in position for a wild-card spot at 37-28, and 28, but three games off the pace. So I would say, I would still call this a three-team race between these clubs, because I don't think you can rule the Giants out of this equation altogether, particularly for the Padres. The Dodgers are who they are, and they are that pretty much every single year. They've proven it time after time that they will go out, And they will get those reinforcements, which you alluded to earlier this year. But no Mookie Betts for the Dodgers for a short amount of time, they hope. No Manny Machado, though, for the San Diego Padres for what they hope is a short amount of time. Of the two losses, and I think this speaks to your point earlier, the Padres, I feel like, are going to have a harder time replacing Machado than the Dodgers are with Mookie Betts.
2: Well, they were already making up for the loss of Fernando right. Tatis exactly. Jr. Right. I mean, yes. you can only get so much so much out of Jurickson Profar, a guy who you know has has. You talk about guys who haven't lived up to what we thought they were going to be earlier in their careers. I mean, you you can only get you can only cover that for so long. And I, I, obviously, if you look at it from you know the perspective of you know if, if the, everybody comes back healthy, who's going to benefit the most from the guys returning? i obviously it's going to be the Padres when you think about what they potentially could have, but. Um, you know, right now, I mean that the Padres and the Giants are in wild card position out west. So um, this Giants team, man, I'm excited to see these guys coming up. It, it, what, a, what is a, the way this team operates to me is just so crazy because I'm getting this a little bit more later uh, in terms of because they're obviously going to be playing the Braves here coming up. But yeah. they have set. They have right now uh, eight players with at least 100 plate appearances who are hitting at or above league average across all of baseball. Only the Mets have more. Yeah. this team just gets it done they don't mm-hmm. they just it the I love the Gabe Kapler quote he said we're a mix and match team style play the team that finishes the game is probably not the team that starts the game yeah. the way he like just the machinations of him I mean it's the fact that it didn't work out for him in, in Philly and, and the fact that he has carte blanche in San Francisco yeah. to operate like this this he he is doing this exactly the way th- this is Gabe Kapler's team to a T.
1: Yeah, and this was something I was going to go back to because a lot of fun was made of Gabe Kapler, particularly on his his first night managing when he hadn't warmed up a reliever uh, and, yeah, and yeah. messed everything up yep. in Atlanta, and then Nick Markakis hit that walk-off home run, and the Braves won, and then the Braves did some more winning that year and won the division. But, you know, Gabe Kapler not working in Philly, I'm starting to think, and maybe to a lesser extent Joe Girardi, who at least had a pedigree of winning, although it was a big payroll club in New York for a very long time, maybe it's not just the manager up in Philly that's been the problem for the way that things have run in that city. And I'm not just trying to take another, you know, swipe at the Phillies because I think you can look at how they've drafted, developed and signed from an international basis on top of the, um, the, the draft each and every June or, or July. Now I just have serious, you know, reservations or questions about how exactly they built that club because they've gone out and they've spent the stupid money. They said they wouldn't have gone and got some pretty good players, but their inability to glue it all together with the pieces that they're bringing up through the farm system is a difference in a club like the Phillies and a club like, say, the Giants, who have manufactured some of their own and then gone out and gotten some pieces, not spent stupid money, but gone out and gotten some pieces and put together a whole system. And their pitching system over the past few years, I think, has been at or near or above just about every club in the National League. They just get better results out of pitchers that may have come in either you know, off a down year, not having been altogether that good, or just never having found their ceiling and they're finding something special out in San Francisco.
2: And Farhan Zaidi, who took over out there, I mean, it's very similar to what's happening in L.A. for a reason. He comes from that Dodger tree, just like Alex Anthopoulos came over after his... You know, he went from the Blue Jays out to L.A. before he landed in Atlanta. There's a lot of similarities between how these organizations Mm -hmm. run. It's because it all comes from what they were doing uh, with the Dodgers. And I, I think that's just it's just understanding and i you know it drives me crazy how on broadcast or you'll you'll hear guys asking managers about how do you disseminate uh, how do you move information down the down the, ch- the chain right like yeah. when guys come to you with all the analytics how do you decide what gets into the players heads how do you not overwhelm them it just seems like, for whatever reason, the guys that come out of that Dodger system have a much better understanding of how to use a lot, utilize it without making it seem like it's a foreign language.
1: Yeah, and you always hear that paralysis through analysis kind yeah. of thing being thrown around and said. And I do think, yeah, you could get too far into the numbers and too far into information and overwhelm people or turn them off to it as well. And this is something that we could really say for a show that we do about a quarter to never because I'm tired of hearing it debated yep. on a lot of different broadcasts because baseball has so many different forms of information that it takes for clubs who are serious about winning to parse through and figure out what works for them, what's relevant to them, and how exactly to apply it. And to go all the way back and to shine shine a bright light on Los Angeles, the Dodgers figured out a very good way of doing that, and people are copying it because it's something that works really well. Now, that aside, and out of the NL West and, well, not completely, but into the wild card, the San Diego Padres are holding that top spot. The San Francisco Giants, Atlanta Braves have the other two spots in that wild card race with the Brewers, And the Cardinals a half game back. But keeping in mind, the Cardinals and Brewers are tied. And I guess the Cardinals have the tiebreaker as far as the Central is concerned as of right now. Then you've got the Phillies two and a half games back. And Arizona is much further back. But this is quite a compelling wild card race. And, Corey, the Braves were not even in this discussion three weeks ago. Because they couldn't find their way over
2: five hundred, and it feels like I mean, when you look at Milwaukee and St. Louis. It feels like whichever one of them doesn't win the division is out. I just can't see one of those. Whoever I can't feel like I feel like the other team is is missing out. Yeah, I think the East is going to take a spot. I think so too. And I think the West is going to obviously get uh, get in as well. So um, the, whether whether it's the Phillies and the Braves uh, or the Mets, if the Mets end up collapsing, but um, yeah, it, it feels like it's division title or bust for the central teams.
1: Yeah, I think that it could be because I think the Mets and the Braves are going to be there. I'm not going to totally rule out the Phillies, but they're going to have to prove it over a longer sample size than just getting hot after Joe Girardi got fired because I do think that they have more inefficiencies with their club than either the Mets or the Braves or clubs out west for that matter, of which there are three vying for playoff spots. And you got to figure that the Padres and Giants are going to do everything they can to get to the top of the heap out west. And the Dodgers are going to do everything they can to keep them from doing so. But as far as the uh, standings are concerned in the National League right now. The Mets with a five-and-a-half game lead over the Braves. It's the Cards and the Brewers tied in the Central. The Dodgers with a mere half-game lead over the Padres out West. And we just talked about the wild-card spots, of which the Braves are holding on to one of those. When we come back, we'll be sizing up the American League as From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney continues on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game.
0: Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: Welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on a Sunday evening. We appreciate you making time to join us on the show. If you like what you're hearing, you can get From the Diamond wherever you find your podcast. You can also find us on the Odyssey app. But if you like us, go ahead and subscribe. Just search for From the Diamond wherever you get your favorite podcast. You can find us there every single week. Now, let's look at the American League, Corey, because uh, I don't know why we do this to ourselves every week, but we do. We look at the American League East, and, well, it seems that not much really changes altogether in the big picture. The Yankees lost a game. I guess that's news, right, because they had a winning streak coming into the day, but they're 49-17 and with an 11-game lead over the second-place Blue Jays, who have been playing very good baseball themselves and are now 10 games over five hundred. Uh, but, I mean, you're talking about the best record in baseball, the biggest lead in any division, and even if they hit a speed bump, Who in the world is going to be able to topple the New York Yankees in the AL East? That seems to be about as sure a thing as you can find in a baseball season at the point that we're at, which is not even at the end of June. Yeah, I mean, think
2: about the Blue Jays, right? Like, they just went on this great run where they looked like you expected the Blue Jays to look, and they cannot make up any ground. They're now a season-high 12 games back of the Yankees. And when you think about the Yankees, you think about a storied franchise, and franchise records are great, but when you have a franchise record with the mm-hmm. Yankees, I think it stands out a little bit more. Clay home uh, Clay Holmes' 29 streak of scoreless appearances, the longest in franchise history, broke yeah. Mariano Rivera's 1999 record of 28 straight. Holmes has not allowed a run in his past 31 in the third inning pitch, he yielded a 142 average in that stretch. Rivera had a 136 in his, with 32 and uh, two thirds scoreless. And Holmes said, "The fact that it's Mariano Rivera makes it special." So this yeah. guy, I'm, what a what a crazy story. You think about. He had a 557 ERA with the Pirates, right? Mm-hmm. He was there for three years as a Yankee, he has a 0.90 ERA. He has this unhittable sinker and minus 14 run value, 159 average against. Mm-hmm. We talk about a team that has almost no holes at all. And the, now that you see a, a record come out of this Yankees bullpen, it's just the offense is fantastic. But, man, you you get past that rotation, and it does not get any easier.
1: Yeah, and they're doing all this without a role to Chapman right now. Exactly, And they're hoping to get him back sometime soon, but they're doing it without the figurehead of that bullpen. The Yankees losing, and the win by the Blue Jays on Sunday did trim a game off it, but an 11-game deficit is still not something the Blue Jays are going to enjoy digging themselves out of. Tampa Bay Rays, meanwhile, have lost 7 out of 10 and find themselves 13 games out, but you know they do have the possibility of competing for a wild card, as does pretty much anybody not named the Yankees. Don't have to worry about it in that division. That's done a decent amount of winning. The Red Sox are right there in that race. They've turned around their awful start to the in the month of April and into early May, and they're getting some world class play out of Trevor Story, who they played a whole or paid a whole bunch of money for to bring in and to help them out. I think he's finally gotten himself really acclimated to second base. I saw that great jump play that he made, I believe, on Saturday night or Friday or Saturday night anyway. So Story is doing it at the plate. He's doing it in the field as well. And I was curious, you know, you take a guy who is accustomed to being a shortstop and for most teams in baseball would be their starting shortstop, but they happen to have a guy in Xander Bogarts who's going to have that job, at least in the short term, and we'll find out about the long term for Bogarts as well. But for the Boston Red Sox, they have found their way back into the wildcard race, which seems to be the consolation prize mm-hmm. for <laughs> clubs that don't play in New York in the American League East. As we look at the central of, this, uh, of the American League, it's getting a little tighter now because the Guardians have closed in on the Twins, and they have now made it just a one-game difference as Minnesota lost on Sunday, and now you have Cleveland with their win on Sunday. These two clubs are set to face each other at the start of the week. This should be uh, kind of exciting because the Cleveland Guardians all of a sudden have gone from being a club that hey, we've got Jose Ramirez, he's going to stick around for a while and maybe that was going to be the highlight of the year to playing a pretty good brand of baseball. And the Twins have not really been able to pull away from this division despite the fact that the White Sox have not been a club that's been able to do anything close to what they were expected to do because it was supposed to be Chicago's division. The Twins have
2: not won consecutive games since May 24th. So almost a month now. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's wild, right? They were They were up as many as five games on June 1st um, I will say Dylan Bundy uh, looked really good for them on Saturday. Joe Ryan is back. The opening day starter had been shut out, uh, shut down for three weeks. He was on the COVID list. Sonny Gray is back. So you think about a, what's been a what's been a middle of the rotation, mm-hmm. uh, middle of the road rotation, 14th in WAR. Uh, but Gray and Ryan being back, Dundee, Bundy finally looking like the pitcher the Twins hoped that they were. That's yeah. huge. Chris Archer has been really good of late. So what does this mean uh, in terms of them going into this matchup with the Guardians? I mean, I think that's that's the big piece, right? We know what the offense is capable of, but if this rotation can be something comparable to what it was on paper at the beginning of the season, they face each other in eight of the next eleven games. This is going to be fantastic battle. Um, We did see with the Guardians though uh, against the Dodgers on Friday. If if Jose Ramirez, who was out with a thumb injury, is not in that lineup, this offense is so much easier to navigate. I mean, they were held to two hits by the Dodgers, or fewest in a game this season. Um obviously, you know, not everyone is going to look as good as Julio Urias did in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, Jose Ramirez, obviously this guy just is, is on a completely it's a next different level. Player. level. So, yeah. But you take him and you take what's, what should be in an improved Twins rotation for that matchup, eight of the next 11, I think this is going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it should be. Chris Archer was on the losing side of the Twins' loss on Sunday. Just a couple of solo home runs, though, across four innings. I think in some ways he's still kind of building back to being something close to Better than average depth in your rotation, somebody on the back end rather than somebody you're bringing in to front the rotation, like you did for so many years with Tampa Bay. And of course, got a, a pretty big bounty for the Pirates uh, from the Pirates to the Rays when that trade went down a couple of years ago. Uh, the Twins also called Alex Kirillov up. He had been really tearing the cover off the ball at Triple A after getting demoted. He had been dealing with some wrist injuries again. I think they're looking for a jolt wherever they can get it and they were hoping that Kirillov can be the top 10 prospect that he has shown, and that's a a very advanced hitter, and maybe he can plug into their lineup and give them a little bit more than they've been able to find, um, offensively speaking, for a while now. As we look in the Central a little bit further down, we find the White Sox, and still, I mean, I feel like we do this song and dance every week, much like we talk about how the Yankees are in the spot that they're in. The White Sox have not found their winning streak, and they have not found a way to really challenge for the, the Central as of yet. There is ample season left to go. This is certainly not an unsurmountable lead that the Twins or the Guardians would have, depending on how things go this coming week. But the White Sox just seem to not be able to get out of neutral.
2: But they have hope because the rotation is getting back. Lance Lynn is back now. Dylan Cease, Lucas Giolito, Johnny Cueto, Michael Kopech. Great rotation. I mean, it's. It, but the can the offense hold up his end? 22nd in WAR this month. 25th in homers. Um, but the, I will say though. They, the schedule is certainly set up for them to mm-hmm. make some kind of a run. What remains is the second easiest in terms of combined winning percentage of remaining opponents at 475. Only the Cardinals have it easier than the White Sox do the rest of the season. So um, there is certainly hope, uh, and Tim Anderson expected to be activated from the I.L. on Monday. Uh, there's no timetable on Aloy Jimenez's return. He took BP on Saturday, still in Charlotte with the Knights. but. Um, They are getting closer to being healthier, and you get that kind of a rotation, a lot like we talk about with the Twins. Mm -hmm. It looks really good on paper.
1: Yeah, but if you told me at this point of the season, heading toward the end of June, that the White Sox would have barely outscored the Kansas City Royals this year, Mm -hmm. I would have asked you to show your math and tell me exactly how that happened or wondered how many players were on the injured list. But there have been some injuries. Jimenez being a big one for him. Losing Tim Anderson for any amount of time certainly hurts them as Mm -hmm. well, but and it's just not been a a club that's been able to put it all together offensively or not. Uh, We don't talk about the Detroit Tigers a whole lot because this has kind of been a rough season for them, but Riley Green making his Major League debut, that's a player to get excited about if you're Detroit, and he was able to pick up not one but two hits in his Major League debut. An exciting player, and I think here on From the Diamond and as we look at all of the teams in baseball, we get excited to see these guys make these debuts, and Riley Green had to wait a while because he suffered a foot injury in spring training, but... Now it seems like it the Riley Green era perhaps is beginning for Detroit and
2: that's a lot to be excited about. And they and they are ready to get excited about anything, Something, right? I mean, please. he's the first major leaguer to reach base safely four times in his debut since Cedric Mullins had three hits and a walk in 2018. No Tiger had done that since Scott Livingston had three hits and a walk in oh, the 1991. Scott Livingston era. I mean, they're still 12 games back, 15 below 500, but obviously now some excitement with this team beyond seeing what Miguel Cabrera has done in the career milestone mm-hmm. list. By the way, he just got his 420 first double in a Tigers uniform, just moved past Lou Whitaker in that department. He's got a long way to go to hit Ty Cobb <laughs> That's yeah. not That ain't happening. But um, at least something beyond the Miguel Cabrera watch is, yeah. is fun to watch in Detroit. No, I certainly think that that is.
1: And so Bradley Green making his presence felt for Detroit. They have been waiting for that for a while, and especially getting a, a, a bit of a silver lining after knowing that Casey Myers had to undergo Tommy John surgery, and he's going to be out for, I would guess, 12 to 14 months as far as that's concerned. Out west, you've got the Houston Astros with a very comfortable lead uh, in that division. The Angels fell on hard times. We talked about their 14 game losing streak. The Rangers were able to move into second place, but Houston's the only team in the division over 500. And then the Angels and Rangers are within half a game. They flip flop today. So it goes Astros, nine games. Then you find the Angels, and a half game back of that is the Texas Rangers. But, you know, the Astros, and we talked about this immaculate inning thing that they had going for them. We talked about their 11-game winning streak that pushed them to the top of that division as well. It would appear for the umpteenth straight year, despite, you know, whatever methods they used in the past, but to the point that they're playing right now, that the Astros are the team to beat in the AL West, and nobody seems to be able to step up and play consistently enough for long enough to
2: knock them off the top. Justin Verlander, though, looking a little bit mortal his last time out. Uh, He sat down six of the first seven he faced Saturday against the White Sox, then allowed four runs on five hits. Um, you know, I say he's a little bit mortal, but he's allowed to have a couple of clunkers. He did allow yeah. six on May 27th against the Mariners, but um, he is in line to face the Yankees his next time out. So um, that's going to be they, they've got the they've got series coming up. They've got two against the Mets, then they got three against the Yankees, then two more against the the Mets, and then one more against the Yankees. Uh, just kind of a oddity there with the makeup that they have to do, um, but that's going to be a couple Verlander starts yeah. he's scheduled to get against the Yankees. So. Um, th- that, those are going to be you know, some testing grounds mm-hmm. for, for this team to see what he's capable of. But I would say uh, you get a ticked-off Justin Verlander coming off of a bad outing, and that's probably bad news for whoever he's got next.
1: Yeah, it's probably going to be fun for that lineup. Now, I do want to talk about something that I feel like we just don't get to talk about enough, and injuries have certainly taken the shine off of this a time or three over the last few years, and that is Mike Trout. He's still the best player in baseball. If you're wondering, I won't be taking any further questions at this time. Five home runs in his five games against Seattle, including a go-ahead two-run shot and a win on Sunday to become the first player in either American League or National League history to hit four game-winning home runs in a single series. Now, not walk-offs, but hitting the game-winning home run, and that is just another incredible piece of the Mike Trout story. It would appear that after his mini-slump that happened during that 14-game losing streak in which Joe Madden was relieved of his managerial duties, that Mike Trout has rediscovered that he is, in fact, Mike Trout and has room to grow and show
2: off, and that should scare people, too. <laughs> He's hit 52 against the Mariners, which is it tied for the uh, most against him ever with Rafael Palmeiro now. 33 of those have come in Seattle. I was going to
1: say, he hits more home runs in Seattle than most Mariners hitters yeah, hit in Seattle, crazy. and he doesn't play nearly as many games there.
2: They got their first series win since May 20th to the 22nd against the A's. Their first on the road since May 13th to the 15th in Oakland. Uh, you know, he also hit a pair of home runs on Thursday. Uh, I mean, we went through this talking about the Madden departure. No team mm-hmm. has ever lost 12 straight and made the postseason, let alone the 14 straight that they lost uh, when Madden got canned. Their next 19 games, three are against teams with a winning record. Three. They've yeah. got a chance, just like the Braves did, to have right a, time, the a period of time to write the ship.
1: Yeah, we'll see what they're able to do. Let's take a look at the wild card in the American League, though, as the Toronto Blue Jays, who have the, uh, I guess, the dubious distinction of trying to chase the Yankees in the American League East, and that may not be a very fun race, but they do have the top wild card spot by a couple of games. Cleveland Guardians and the Tampa Bay Rays are right there, half a game back of that. You find the Boston Red Sox, and then the White Sox are there. They're three and a half games out. Angels, four and a half games out, but this becomes a problem with the card, and this is for both leagues, and despite the fact there's an extra one, it's this whole pile that you have to fight your way over or through. It's It's like trying to break through a whole bunch of linebackers and score on the goal line. Yeah, you could do it, but you might get stuffed as well and not everybody's going to be able to secure a spot in October.
2: Red Sox had a Chris Sale sighting on Friday. He I threw saw that. 32 pitches in a simulated game. If they get him back and he's not the two-pitch pitcher that he was last year when he just, you know, when when 5-1 with a 3.16 ERA. He threw fastballs and sliders almost exclusively. Then, if he gets that changeup working again, and he becomes almost—and I know people hate saying this—almost like a trade acqu- a midseason acquisition, I mean, you I think do he it. can completely change everything when it comes to the Red Sox in that wild card race.
1: It would be impressive if the Red Sox were able to shrug off that slow start, and in a division where you've got two more teams that have their eyes on wild card spots, to be able to even take one of those spots and have to hold off anybody else in the rest of the league that has eyes on that as well. The Guardians could be a pretty tough team in that regard, but you know, are is Cleveland the kind of club that's going to go out there and be buying at the at the trade deadline? I have my serious reservations about that. So if they're not going to get the kind of reinforcements they need, they're going to have to do it all in house, and are do they have enough right now? Do you believe to really hold on to one of those spots?
2: I, I mean, I love the offense, right? I mean, I, I, outside of Ramirez, you got Andrew Jimenez, you got Josh Naylor, who's been fantastic. But again, we saw this when Ramirez was was out. Mm-hmm. You can get through that lineup if he's not there. I think it's a great team. I think what they do, they do exceptionally well. Uh, I you know, I, I just don't think. I think they're it's very much like the NL Central. I think if you don't get that division title, I don't think you're making it to the postseason.
1: yeah, and that seems to be the litmus test is that if you can win your division, every every single club every year says that's the way we want to get in. This wild card thing is nice, but let's just say if we fall short, then that's plan B or Plan C, as the case may go. Uh, these days. So that's what's going on around the American League as the Yankees with a very sizable lead in the East. You've got the Twins just ahead of the Guardians in the Central and the Astros by a lot out in the West. When we come back, we will turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves and preview what's coming up this week as they are home. The Giants, the Dodgers come to town. It's going to be a lot of excitement. Expect more sellouts at Truist Park and we'll break it all down for you coming up right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney. On Sports Radio 92.9, the game.
0: Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, the game.
1: Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you as we wrap up this week's edition. We've talked a lot about the week that was for the Braves. We've taken our look around the big leagues, and now it's time to look ahead to what the Braves have on tap for us this week. They're back at Truist Park. They got four games against the San Francisco Giants. They followed it up with three games against the Dodgers, and they enter all of that five-and-a-half games back of the Mets. That's a five-game improvement, Corey, since the first of June. You'll certainly take that. And after this 29-game stretch against sub-500 teams, the Braves are going to be seeing a trio of winning clubs over the next week and a half. This is where the test starts, right? This is what you've been kind of working that momentum towards to start feeling like yourself again, stringing together some wins, and by some wins, I mean 14 in a row. (laughs) That'll certainly play. It starts with the Giants, though, and includes the Los Angeles Dodgers, who we've also talked about. And that's going to make it kind of interesting from a couple of storyline standpoints, at the very least, with the return of two Braves that I think, for different reasons and to different degrees, are probably never going to have to buy a drink in Atlanta if one of them wants to buy one and if the other one ever needs to buy one. And I think Jock Peterson is going to get a pretty loud ovation when it comes to World Series ring time uh, when the Dodgers, or excuse me, when the Giants and the Braves. Uh, begin their four-game series on Monday.
2: Jock Peterson's having a ridiculous season, Very too. Very I mean, it, I, I hate to do this because there's going to be people that are going to say that, you know, we, they signed the wrong outfielder. I mean, certainly, you know, from what he's, Eddie Rosario, you know, still working his way back from after having that uh, eye surgery, but Jock is just having an unreal season. He's got 14 homers, hitting 52% above league average. Um, he's a one2 WAR player right now, and, and you know, the, He's going to get his ring, and then you're going to hear all those storylines nobody wants to talk about anymore when the Dodgers come to town and Freddie Freeman gets his ring, too. So, going to yep. be a couple of those handed out this week to Peterson and Freeman. So, um, but man, it, I'm, I'm excited to see what this last stretch of 29 games really means in terms of now that the Braves have momentum, they found themselves offensively, the pitching staff's coming off some nice outings. Uh, What's it going to mean when the degree of difficulty ratchets up mm-hmm. and you get to see a team like the Giants?
1: Yeah, and you'll find out immediately, and at least you've got you know, the starting rotation set up the way that you want to to begin out this homestand or to, to, to crank it up here against the Giants. you got Max Reed going on Monday. Uh, then you're going to turn it to Spencer Strider and then Charlie Morton and Kyle Wright. So you got your top four going, and that should be exciting for the Braves to – be able to kind of you know test their metal against a club like the Giants that has been pretty good, and you got Logan Webb throwing in the first game. They have not announced a pitcher for the second game, and then Carlos Rodon and Alex Wood, our old friend, former Brave and former Georgia Bulldog, will cl- throw the uh, fourth game in that series. So you know the the Braves, I feel like the identity they were searching for and what they found in the 14-game winning streak, and even again showed it again on Sunday in beating the Cubs, was their ability to hit and their ability to pile up runs, their ability to hit the ball hard consistently and get good results, their ability to grab leads and then add on later so that they're able to win games without having to completely stress out your bullpen night after night after night. This is a club that just looks so much different over a longer period of time. And I would say, yeah, they did it against clubs they're supposed to beat, but let me take you back to April and into May where they were supposed to beat clubs and didn't beat clubs that they could have. Where they let series against, I think, the Brewers and against the Padres in particular, against the Arizona Diamondbacks. They let it slip through their fingers by losing a couple of three games that they shouldn't have lost. This is a club that just has simply played different lately, and I think that that bears well when you have to start facing clubs like you're going to see in the Giants and then the Dodgers, which we'll get to.
2: Yeah, you mentioned Logan Webb. He's not he's not as good as he was a year ago, a 3-4-3 ERA, but he's coming off of a couple starts with two runs or less. Uh, Carlos Rodon has been fantastic, uh, a 2 ERA out of him. Uh, you know, you mentioned Alex Wood. I, I talked about this earlier in the show, the fact that the Giants just get it done in such a different way. Again, they have eight players with at least 100 PAs who are hitting at or above league average, and mm-hmm. only the Mets have more. If you go back to that Saturday game, uh, in that game they had seven different players score, six drove-in runs, and Alex Wood team with five relievers to get a 13th win in their last 19 games in that one. It is all about matchups with this team. It's all about in-game adjustments that Gabe Kapler does. Brian Snicker is is by and large a guy that rolls his guys out there, and, mm-hmm. and that's that's the crew, right? Yeah. I think those the how he, he kind makes of, changes out of necessity, he does. But but with Gabe Kapler, it's it's chess. It's design. It's right. by design, and I think that's going to make it for a really interesting matchup. Mm-hmm. Because go back to that as you mentioned, uh, Kapler's first outing as a manager when he was with the Phillies and what he has now with this crew i think i mean this is going to be i think this series just sets up to be really interesting managerial matchup in the way that these two guys operate their clubs as well and when you've got a team that and the giants that does what they do so well and a in a team in the Braves that you know these are our guys let's roll them out there and and, and you know we know what as Snit likes to say on mm-hmm. the back of their baseball cards Yeah, I, I think it's setting up to be a lot of fun
1: yeah i think that the Braves more so this year than perhaps just about any year though I, i'd have to look at it at 2021 and say a lot of it happened as well There were some necessary adjustments that had to be made, and for the most part, they were made around the time that they needed to be. Now, how could you have adjusted six hitters or thereabouts that weren't hitting well over the first five, six, seven weeks of the season? There's not really an answer for that. Eventually, players have to play and produce and do the things they're supposed to do, or you can change it all you want to, but as they say, it's just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, it's not really going to help you out. And I don't think the Braves are looking, they're feeling like the Titanic in the month of April or May, and nor do they feel like it in the month of June, now that they seem to have been able to, you know, get themselves on the right track and moving in that right direction. But the Giants are going to be a test. Uh, We are going to see Jock Peterson. I think that he's going to get a thunderous ovation, and rightfully so. Because when you think about what Jock Peterson brought to the Braves, it wasn't that he came over and put up the biggest of all the numbers of all their midseason acquisitions, but he was that first one in. And he was the one I think that came in and reminded the Braves a little bit of, "Hey man, we just we beat you guys last year in the NLCS, and you know there's more here than is is happening right now." And you know, having just lost Ronald Acuna Jr., that was a a difficult and delicate time for that club because you had to feel like, "All right, well we just lost one of our best players, if not our best player, and definitely one of the best players in baseball. What do we do?" And Jock came in and was one of the first pieces towards fixing that. We know how the trade deadline went with bringing in more outfielders, bringing back Adam Duvall, getting Eddie Rosario, getting Jorge Soler, And each and every single one of these guys made a huge contribution towards making the Braves who they were in 2021. And I'm not just sitting here trying to do a retrospective on the Braves World Series team, but I do want to point out that regardless of you know how long you want to go in Braves lore, Jock Peterson did an awful lot for this club in a very short amount of time, and I think he's going to be a beloved Brave for – the rest of his career and, and the rest of the time that he is you know, walking the
2: planet Earth. Yeah, and it wasn't just, obviously, the play in the field. I mean, it was you know, one of the most memorable quotes of the entire season. Uh, oh, yeah, season. that it was, we can't it, give you on this show. Yeah, it was right, and it was the pearls, and it was you know, yeah. just the, the energy around the club. and uh, you know, I think you know, he was just a, a breath of, uh, whether you say fresh air or whatever this team he needed He was a to shot have. in the arm, he I'd was, say yeah, more than anything, yeah. maybe a kick in the pants. Yeah, and he was exactly what that club needed, and funnily enough, funny enough, He's, funnily. He's doing the exact same thing for another club out in San Francisco. Yeah,
1: and it, it certainly helps. And I think he's
2: doing the same thing, just igniting uh, his yeah. fantasy league when he's not uh, busy. Oh, yeah, yeah. We can get, maybe we can get some tips from him. You know, so I want to know. Like this, a- I don't know. I mean, is it a dynasty league? I, I don't know. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to hit Mike Trout up with my questions for that. But, yeah. um, man, he's just, he's been fantastic. And, and, again, you know, I – he, him coming back here, mm-hmm. it's going to be a, a you know, massive uh, a reunion for him with with these guys and him getting his ring. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm. It goes beyond that. I mean, Mike Mikey Stremsky is is really playing, having a nice sure. season for this club. And it, it's there's a lot of depth to that team. And um, I don't I don't know that we pay attention to them enough because I think they get lost in the shuffle of this of all the stars that are out in that in yeah. that division and what the Dodgers have and the Padres and what they don't have and do have at times, but yeah. I mean, it gets lost in the shuffle with, with this Giants team.
1: And I think it gets, when you're on the East Coast, a little bit harder to keep up with every single late-night yeah. game that happens at 10 or 10.30, and that's the start time for when these clubs are playing out there, but to uh, to button up the thoughts on Jock Peterson and transition over to the Dodgers, another one of his teams, you know, Stephen Vogt was in town recently with the Oakland Athletics. I got to catch up with him for a minute. He got his World Series ring, and I said, that's really something. He's like, man, they got every single thing right. You know, every aspect that was put into that ring, which of course Jock's finally going to get his, but that pearl right there on the side, that's almost like every single ring has been signed in some way by Jock Peterson because that was just a little piece of flair. Mm-hmm. Uh, pardon the office space reference, but. Just something that really caught people's attention and became something where fans were going everywhere from Amazon to the dollar store trying to find a strand of pearls so they could wear it throughout the Braves' playoff run. Pretty impressive stuff. And Jock Peterson will be back to get his World Series ring as the Giants roll into town. That leads me to the segue to another gentleman who's going to be picking up his World Series ring and who I do think, regardless of how this whole thing played out and we don't need to do a retrospective of what happened in the offseason, we know Freddie Freeman's an L.A. Dodger Matt Olsen is an Atlanta Brave. We also know that the Braves, with Freddie Freeman last year, won the World Series for the first time in 26 years. Freddie spent over a decade as, I would say, the face of the franchise, and now that mantle will be passed on, I'm sure, to Ronald Acuna Jr. That's kind of the, the way it goes for the heir apparent in that regard. But putting aside some of that, or all of that, and just looking at, in a vacuum, what Freddie Freeman meant to the Braves and what he helped the Braves accomplish, it's a special moment for him to get his World Series ring when he does when the Dodgers come into town, and well earned for Freddie who spent and and really put everything he had into playing well for the Atlanta Braves. And I think that fans, the majority of them, will recognize that.
2: Yeah, I, I'm sure there's going to be a smattering of boos, you know, when he comes to play. I really the play, don't but think so. You don't think so? No,
1: I really don't. I mean, like, will he get booed when he comes to the plate? Will he get booed if he hits a home run or does something against the Braves? Sure, but that's the stuff you boo opponents for. But to boo him during his world series ring? No, no, no. Thing? I don't think it's going to happen during okay. the world series. I, I think it's going to
2: happen when he I think you're yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. he's going to get Yeah, yeah, yeah. then we're on the same page. They're going to they're going to go crazy when he gets his ring. That's yeah. going to be his moment. That's what and I was thinking. to. then you're yeah. going to flip the flip the page and now he's playing he's wearing the enemy's clothing yep. the next time yep. he comes up to bat. But um you know, obviously it's going to be you know, the, the fact that they they waited to do it. They didn't take it out to him in LA. Yeah. I think that was that was the right move. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if they hadn't done it, if they had done it in LA, I think it would have a, he'd have a completely different response that first those first glimpses of him in a Dodgers uniform on you know on the field at Truist Park but I think they did it the right way um, you know obviously you know there's going to be so much hoopla a lot of those stories are going to come up he's going to have mm-hmm. to smile and you know do the same interviews that he's done a million times already for yeah, the do it again, again. Yep, so it one, one more time, time. so um, there's going to be a, a lot of attention placed on Freddie Freeman in this series and you know this is this was the spotlight that he wanted you know going out to that team to be a part of that crew so um, you know, they're not going to have Mookie Betts, so there's going to be even more expected from him in this series. But, of course, Trey Turner's on that team, too, and we know what he loves to do to, to uh, Braves pitching. Yeah, so. you know why they used to call
1: it Turner Field, where the Braves used to play? <laughs> right. It's
2: because Trey Turner showed up the last couple of years yeah. there and just wore
1: the Braves out. But, no, it, it's going to be a good club that rolls into town. It's a first-place team. It's a, a club that if you're the Braves and you're being realistic about it, and you'd hope if you're the Dodgers and you're being realistic – you want to see each other again in October. And some of the greatest moments in the history of this new ballpark happened during that series. The walk-offs, the strikeouts by Tyler Matzik, the celebration of winning it and advancing to the World Series, you know, winning that NLCS and ending what had been quite a drought for the Braves in terms of being able to get back to a World Series. The first time since 99 to win their first one after that since 95. I mean, so many different things were happening, and the road to get there was get through the LA Dodgers, and I don't think that that has changed at all for the Braves, despite the fact that they won it all this year, or this past year.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, even go back to you know Ronald Acuna Jr. as a rookie getting that grand slam off Walker yeah. Buehler in the put. There have just been these two teams have literally been the standard for the National League the past. I mean, they're, they're both they're the last two World Series champions. I mm-hmm. mean, they have they these two have been the best teams in the National League. For the last four years, Uh, no disrespect to the Nationals, who do have a ring in that span too, but they kind of folded things up a little bit. But um, I I, I just think that series is going to be so much fun. And Tony Gonsolin is now uh, on schedule for that Sunday start. This guy could end up being the starter for the National League in the All Star Game. He's having an insane season. Uh, I think the pitching matchups could be really good in that one too. Right now, it's shaping up to be Ian Anderson, uh, Max Freed, and Spencer Strider. So, uh, mean, the Braves are getting their guys out there in this uh, in this series as well. So, between the you know that series and the uh, the one against the uh, the Giants, I mean, these are going to be an b- absolute blast.
1: Yeah, it's the kind of fun that you look forward to, and it is good that the Braves have been able to do what they've done to handle the business that they needed to against the clubs that they needed to beat in order, I think, to finally maybe feel more like themselves from last year or years past and also start to really come together as a club. Because you remember, and we talk about this, I don't have to do it at length right now. In fact, we don't have time to. But, you know, the importance of of really circling the wagons, having that team meeting, and then going on a run like that. I mean, not every team meeting yields a 14-game winning streak. I'm here to tell you that. Not every team meeting uh, is a lot of fun. You can ask the Miami Marlins about that. but. Regardless, you wanted to see the Braves come in with some kind of momentum. Yeah, they dropped a the series over the weekend to the Cubs. Saturday to me was the only real game that, that you lost that you have to look at and be like, yeah, they didn't really play well. You lost a one-nothing game on Friday. Things like that happen. But Charlie Morton was throwing so well in that one. Hopefully he can back that up with another good start against the Giants in this series. And, you know, you just want to see Max Freed, who is your your ace, your guy, come in and get the Braves off on the right track in a four-game series against a very Uh, talented and very challenging schedule that's ahead in terms of the Giants and then the Dodgers, and then you got to head out and see the Phillies as well. So this is a pivotal stretch here, Corey, to make a long story short and to bring us on home here that the Braves need to figure out a way to play much like the team they've been this month and not the team that started the season.
2: They have absolute momentum right now, and everything's clicking, as Snit said, over the weekend. So a chance to really get themselves tested now. Well,
1: it'll be Max Freed, who gets it started against the Giants. A whole lot of storylines at Truist Park coming your way as Jock Peterson and the Giants come to town. It'll be Freddie Freeman and the Dodgers. After that, World Series rings will be handed out, and some very good baseball will be played. For Corey McCartney, for our producer Dylan Matthews, I'm Grant McCauley. We thank you, as always, for listening to From the Diamond here on Sunday nights on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, and we will catch you next week. So long, everybody one.